Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to give you guys, my listeners, uh, an explanation for why High Noon has been on a hiatus uh, for the last couple weeks. Um, and it's because after two years, we've decided to switch up the format. Um, I took a lot of input from listeners, from uh, colleagues, from former guests of the show, how to how to make it better. So um, we're starting the second season of High Noon, um, and we're going to move to more of a discussion format. So this is going to be a lot more like the After Dark episodes with Emily Jashinsky. Don't worry, those will continue once a month. Um, but we are going to have rotating co-hosts and we're going to talk um, more about issues related of that week or that several weeks or things that we think the news is not um, sufficiently um, explanatory of. Uh, and, and I will continue to bring you interesting people. Um, it's not to say that we will never have interviews on this show. We probably will have occasionally depending on um, you know what pops up and and what books are published and so on and I, I will continue to bring you those interviews but uh, uh, from reader feedback and listener feedback and uh, and and my own interests in terms of moving the show forward I think this is this is probably the way we're gonna move forward with this is we're gonna have a bunch of delightful rotating co-hosts and our first delightful rotating co-host uh, is Maddie Kearns uh, Maddie is, is with National Review Um She's also a fellow with us at IW. Uh, Maddie, I know you have more hats. Do you want to? Do you want to continue <laughs> to list uh, your hats? Well, you know, I always like to keep it to one or two because after a certain amount of time, people people stop listening. You know, it's it's like that thing when you're when you're uh, making an excuse for for something, you should always stick to just one excuse because if you have to add on loads and loads of excuses, then it sort of damages the credibility of the excuse. That's how I feel about having various titles if you have too many it's like are you trying to compensate for something <laughs> so we'll just stick to the two I I, th I think they're strong enough <laughs> yeah yeah uh there's definitely that effect that that um over explanatory effect I feel like I've probably shot myself in the foot with that more than once <laughs> um well today we have of course uh some somber topics to discuss uh, there really hasn't been much in the news uh other than this invasion, uh, horrible terrorist attack uh, in in Israel, and then we are now, you know, uh, more than a week along. Uh, we will see what the full Israeli response will be. So far, there's been some isolated uh, bombing of military targets in Gaza, but this is obviously not the full retaliation. Israel has has called up um, its reservists, is preparing for a large scale war. There's still a question mark on the northern border with Hezbollah and whether Hezbollah will risk. Uh, including, you know, U.S. threats uh, in, in entering this war from the north. Um, so in all in all, it, it feels like a very precarious place in the world. Um, but I wanted to, to start maybe with us here at home um, and ask you, you know, why you think there does seem to be this strange connection um, between a certain type of the left um, and I don't actually want to, in this case, I do want to separate between different factions of the left. Sometimes I think that's not helpful, but in this case, I think it is uh, a certain kind of, of culturally radical, we used to call them woke left, uh, and support, like, and by, I'm not mincing words, there's actual support for this kind of brutal atrocities, not uh, a generalized support for a Palestinian state, but directly cheering um, cheering the the deaths of Israeli civilians, cheering the deaths of children, and and um, old people and mothers uh, abducted across the border, you know, I, it seems to me that there's these superficial contradictions. Obviously, people have made those superficial contradictions obvious, like queers for Palestine or whatever, right? Um, but why do you think that connection persists despite those superficial contradictions? Um, do you think there is something? that links them other than, uh, I mean, I guess the obvious thing would be just hatred of Jews. But I, I do think there's something, you know, there between those two philosophies. Do you, do you agree or maybe you disagree with me? No, I, I do agree with you. I think that there's uh, several things you, you could appeal to. You could look at its Marxist roots. You could make the claim that, you know, this is, this is part of the wider effort on the left, certainly the identity obsessed left with ridding the world of of colon colonizers as they perceive them you know so no justice no peace like we know that they are comfortable with violence we, we've seen that already with uh, blm and uh, some of the protests 
And so it is quite a, a shocking extension, though, to, to be willing to overlook people uh, breaking into shops and looting and being willing to overlook people raping, murdering, uh, slaughtering civilians, women, children, elderly people. I mean, it is kind of, it does feel like a leap. I was struck by something my colleague at National Review said, Michael Bernard Doherty, he, he talked about the, the almost appetite for suicide that that both the extreme identity left has and uh, you know terrorists such as Hamas have which is this it's kind of like a death cult it's this belief that you know violence is is an ultimate end in itself and there are things worth dying for and and I don't just mean dying yourself but bringing other people with you and you can make a really bold worthwhile statement with your suicide with your your death you know and we've seen this we've seen the the glorification of martyrs, uh, so-called martyrs, these these murderers, these terrorists. Um, we've seen this on on college campuses, you know, from these kind of like weak, like liberal white women's yelling glory to the martyrs. It's really strange. But then we also see that with, um, and this is my my colleague Michael's point, uh, with the trans thing. Some in a weird way, you know, we have this kind of glorification of suicide. This this thing that civilized. Um, societies reject for for obvious reasons for self-preservation aside from anything else there's this kind of embrace of this total nihilism it's profoundly anti-human um it's you know it obviously targets specific minorities as well in this case you know you're seeing uh anti-semitism rear its ugly head i mean i think jonathan sachs the late uh chief british rabbi said that anti-Semitism is like the first warning signal that um, that this this type of ideology is is on the loose. Um, and, you know, they, this, it starts with the Jews, but it doesn't end with the Jews. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're, they're more ideologically aligned than I think many of us realize and many of us are remotely comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a discomfort with uh, essentially just asserting the, the primacy of civilization, the, the moral primacy of civilization, and indeed acknowledging even in the word civilization, implying that there is a difference between savagery and civilization. Um, I think we are deeply uncomfortable with now in the West. Um, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting because like, I don't know, I, I think of the debate in my very left-wing high school over um, reading Heart of Darkness, right? Uh, and this is a debate that continues now. It's one of those books that I know that the left likes to talk about banned book week, which is ludicrous because really what they're objecting to is the removal of pornography from schools. Um, but the, the the real banning from uh, is from college or, or from um, high school uh, reading lists, if, if, if taking something off a high school reading list can even be considered banning, um, is was all of these these books that became sort of uh, un came under attack for various reasons, starting with um, all kinds of uh, uh, just anything written by a white male for a while. But the, those were kind of blanket attacks. The attack against Heart of Darkness was specific, and it was that the Africans in this journey up the Congo of Joseph Conrad, you know, uh, writing about this journey up the Congo it was transliterated, I think, very very well into Vietnam and Apocalypse Now. Um, it, it, the the depiction of of the Congo tribes is savage, and and uh, but I always thought that that completely missed the point in the same way that I think uh, the inability to assert that you know the United States, the West, Israel do represent civilization against savagery, it always misses the point to make it about um, race in the sense that the ultimate point of Heart of Darkness that Joseph Conrad was making is that savagery is this, the natural state of man that has to be, you know, elevate. We have to be trained away from it. Um, and in that sense, it is not a, a quote unquote racist point, right? It's not about this race versus that race. It's um, simply an observation that the natural state of all of us is, is savagery. And that in fact, like Western civilization in this case has, has had to build up away from the natural state of man um, and we are just very uncomfortable with this idea. And I think that's maybe what ties a lot of these, these sort of seemingly disparate threads together on the left is this 
pathological hatred of our own civilization, right? Yeah. Um, and and that's why the obsession with the colonizers, that's why the obsession with, uh, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense anyway in the Israeli-Palestinian con uh, context because, you know, what does it mean to be a colonizer? I mean, many of the Sephardi Jews never left, uh, never left that part of the world, right? Uh, there's been a Jewish presence in, in that part of the world for, for millennia. What does it mean to be a colonizer? But I, I even think this is besides the point, right? Borders change and populations change all the time and nobody objects to it. I mean, like, just think about the modern borders of Europe. There are tons of, you know, German towns and, and on, that are now within the Polish borders and tons of, you know, Czechoslovakia. Or, that shows you how old I am. Um, <laughs> um, you know, there's plenty of towns uh, that are Czech that, that like, um, you know, that there are pieces of like Polish towns and Czech, Czech, right? Czech Republic. Like uh, borders shift and there are populations and that, that does cause problems. And we've seen both in World War One and World War Two how having those, those problems and continue to see today in Ukraine and, and um, Russian conflict as well, how those like pockets of different, you know, uh, ethnic populations that are quote unquote on the wrong side of the border can continue to, to cause international problems. But, but uh, this, this, I, I think the colonization thing is actually just a reflection of hatred of your own, like hatred of your own civilization and of the ability to simply assert that yes, like, this this Western project may not be perfect, but it, it is a damn sight better than anything else man has ever come up with. Um, and that simple statement, that's that's why I, I don't fully agree that people, when people try to completely separate this or make this into a kind of endless ethnic conflict in the Middle East that they neither care about nor understand, there is clearly this lopsided element of Western civilization uh, versus something that is, is simply not, I don't, I, I hesitate to call it a civilization, which is not to say that Palestinians aren't human. In fact, they're all too human. Yeah. I mean, you're obviously talking about this moral relativism, which is not a new problem. We've, we've had this problem um, basically in every major cultural fight that's, this happened certainly since the sixties is this idea that um, things can be justified because of context, right? And and this is what keeps being brought up in regards to this situation is you have to look at the broader context. Um, and the, the people saying this often will have a hard time even just, you know, you'll say, okay, but do you condemn the actions of Hamas? And they say, well, you have to, you have to look at why it happened. You have to look at um, the aggressor and they're, they're resorting to this, this narrative. I mean, I think the New York Review of Books published this open letter, Tanahisi Coates, signed it and there's just amazing amazing not just not even moral equivalence it was it's basically excusing um i mean that's reading between the lines but it, it goes on about the plight of the palestinians um it implicitly denies the the existence of the state of israel and then at the end you know mentions what happened last weekend by saying that um that uh, palestinian forces uh, they, they, I don't know if they said Palestinian forces, but it wasn't Hamas. They did not use the, the, the name Hamas. They broke in to Israel and um, and subsequently uh, this this number of Israelis died. Subsequently, there's a really astonishing use of the, the passive voice there. Subsequently, people died. Okay, but how did they die? Who killed them? I, I just complete step back from that because to them, it's not the point. There's just this this moral relativism where you cannot judge, you cannot objectively judge the actions of a different culture, a different religion, because you can't possibly understand their concerns, their priorities, even if you're talking about the slaughter of Jews. And this was, you know, you, you've mentioned this kind of suicidal men mentality as it applies to civilizations. This was the argument Douglas Murray made in his book, The Strange Death, Death of Europe, which I think came out in 20. 17 either 2016 or 2017 and his argument was we are letting in people into our countries this is in west he's talking about western europe primarily but we are we're letting people in who not only don't share our values and and our moral standards because they are objective moral standards but they are diametrically opposed to them and hate us and will work to destroy us and this has kind of been what we've seen with these protests, these 
blatantly, flagrantly anti-Semitic protests all across Europe, um, you know, shouting support for Hamas in some cases, which, by the way, is, is breaking British law. Um, it's, a, it's a designated terrorist organisation and it's against the law in the UK to glorify terror. But we, we've seen this and, and it, it's one of those wake-up moments where it's like, this is... This is not just affecting how we see Israel. This is affecting how we we see ourselves. And and allowing this type of mentality will destroy us in the long term. And I know you've you've looked into this and talked about this a lot with regards to kind of our the, the United States cultural inheritance and how we talk about its history with slavery and how we make sense of that and how we learn from that and move on from that. And the people who want to basically say nothing's changed since the 1860s. Nothing's changed at all. I mean, a complete and blatant lie. Um, but yeah, it is. It, it is suicidal. I mean, that's the right word. Yeah, it's interesting. That's an interesting parallel between the the personally the sort of personal embrace of suicide and the civilizational one. Uh, that <laughs> I, there there is that contradiction. Like the the same people who support made right um, are are. Uh, you know, they're also in this conversation, and I don't think that is an accident. I think, you know, we are committing a slow-motion suicide in the West, um, as, as Douglas has written. But, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a few different points here. There's these these two prongs, right? And, and it is exactly uh, maybe that question of what ties them together is, is what we've been discussing. But uh, there are these two prongs to the the response, right? In terms of the domestic, first of all, I should I should step back and say, you know, polling shows 71% of Americans strongly support Israel in this conflict. There's overwhelming support um, among the American people. Uh, they understand the moral contours of this this conflict, even if they don't, you know, know 100 years of history, or for that matter, 2,000 years of history uh, in the region. That that the average American looks at this and very clearly and sees the forces of civilization against the forces of barbarism and doesn't second guess that. Um, Nevertheless, we have these two prongs of, of people domestically who do not see that. And the first prong is, is the left, like the woke left, the Ta-Nehisi Coates letters, right? And the second prong is exactly what you're pointing to in Western Europe, still a slightly smaller issue in the United States, but by no means a, a, not an issue. Um, and, and that is the status of immigrants and recent immigrants from these countries that have absolutely no interest in assimilating to Western moral norms, right? Um, and I have wondered how seeing these protests, I feel like uh, perhaps this has been a smack in the face for, a necessary smack in the face for some of those Western Europeans who, uh, you know, in this migrant, continual waves of migrants uh, to Western Europe have, have, in my view, persisted in this, this kind of delusional thinking that essentially everyone is, is fundamentally the same. Right, that that all cultures and all peoples are fundamentally the same, uh, and that it doesn't really matter um, that you're letting in sometimes millions of people uh, with a wildly different, not just culture but worldview, commitments, um, religious commitments, uh, and, and they're not a joke. Like I feel like half of the West doesn't understand. This is not like something that people debate over a table. This is not some ironic commitment. Right. It's it's a deadly serious one. It's an unironic, very like um, direct commitment uh, in, in to in this case to hating Jews. But but more often than not, also hating the West at large, hating the United States, hating Western Europe. Right. Um, and I wonder if seeing these huge protests like throngs and throngs of people filling the capitals of the U.K., you know, uh, France, Germany, right? Um, I wonder what this will do to the understanding. Obviously, like there, there's right wing parties that have have been, you know, screaming about the migrant crisis for years. But uh, I wonder what that will do to to the mainstream conversation over there about whether it's viable for Western Europe to continue to admit, you know, twenty percent of their country in some cases. People who, and, and there are plenty of individual cases to the contrary, I'm sure, but people who fundamentally are not assimilating into Western life and very much clearly as they're out here in the streets for this this kind of ancient ethnic hatred, right, um, don't see themselves primarily as 
French or German or British. Yeah, I think that the politicians have an opportunity here because now is when public sentiment is going to be open to more restrictive immigration policies and, and pushing hard on it. I mean, as you say, people can see this for themselves. It is pretty depress de depressing, though, how in the UK we have media coverage which has already moved on from what happened last weekend and wants to talk about the, the plight of Palestinians stuck in Gaza. And it's not that there's no legitimacy in that conversation. Like, of, of course, this is a humanitarian crisis. Which war isn't? Like, come on. Like, this is, this is kind of how it goes. It's ugly. It's brutal. People are displaced. People have to leave for fear of their lives. This is what happens in war. But the conversation has already moved on. And there's very little focus, if any, frankly, on the ugliness that we've seen. With, with these mass protests, um, the BBC and others are always quick to, to qualify and say, you know, most of these are peaceful, as, as if they've like taken the time to like poll them and ask them what they're, <laughs> they're really sorry. Most of these are peaceful, you know, and, and they tr try and sort of brush over the, the handful of people who could actually be, as I say, prosecuted under British law um, and say, oh, th those aren't representative um, of, of the views. But I think, I think you, you exactly put your finger on it, which is just that these people, a lot of them, and again, obviously not all of them, but like a lot of them really have not assimilated because there's been there's been no effort to make them. There's no there's been no conditions placed on their their being allowed into the country. Um, you know, it's just like come here and 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 set up your your community as it would have been in your home country and despise everything it means to be British and you know radicalize your children if you so wish. Do all of that. I mean, it's it's really not sustainable and you know we in in europe we we've seen this with um with with our terrorism problem uh repeated instances of 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 western naivety in in dealing with it there was the case i think it was the london bridge terror attack a, a few years ago now where somebody with with a a known terrorist was not only let out of jail but was invited into the city center of london for some sort of rehabilitation, rehabilitation uh, conference and uh, stabbed, went on a rampage and stabbed to death a young man who was who had really bought into this, this idea that, that all we need to do is like understand where they're coming from and meet them where they are. I mean, tragic irony right there is, is dying under those circumstances. I think Ron DeSantis has been very, very strong in this where he said, no, they can't come here. Like, of course, these people... Um, like can't stay in Gaza, but they, they what about the the twenty something twenty two Arab countries uh, where they why 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 isn't it their responsibility to to take them in? The U.S. should not be taking in people when we can't differentiate. There's not an easy way to differentiate which are Hamas supporting and which aren't. Um, and especially what you know, and he he described it. He was asked about this in, in an interview recently. He described it as a toxic culture. You know, we know we know that they they teach their children um, to hate Jews. We know they they teach their children that it's it's a glorious death to die a martyr, um, and by martyr you know can mean suicide killer. So how is that compatible with what what we're trying to do in the U.S. or what we're trying to do in the U.K. or these Western liberal democracies? It's not. Like I say, there will be people who this does not apply to who have managed to survive the toxic culture and come out well-adjusted. But until or unless there's a way of differentiating them, I think we have to have a very serious look at our immigration policies and, and whether this is actually something we want to get into. Yeah, I mean, to put it very simply, I think if if you, as a Westerner, are looking at the contours of this conflict uh, in Gaza and don't understand that if there were elections called tomorrow in Gaza, Hamas would almost certainly win. Then you are not understanding this conflict, right? There is this, and, and I, I sort of, I mean, I, I understand why like sort of Israeli PR people, uh, because Israel is so heavily dependent on ultimately 
the support of, of the international community in, in sort of giving them this window to actually go in and destroy Hamas. I think they sometimes uh, also say some things that I think are untrue. And one of those things is is the, the emphasis, and I, this is an important one because I heard it repeated so far by George W. Bush, who apparently has learned nothing, Condoleezza Rice, who has apparently learned nothing, right, is, is essentially that the biggest victims of Hamas are the Palestinians themselves, that they're somehow ground under the boot of this authoritarian group that runs Gaza. And there's this huge separation between. Um, now, I don't want to conflate this kind of ideological support with being a civilian or not, right, in a conflict. You're, you're, not, you're not a combatant until you pick up a gun, right? Uh, so whatever they believe, that's not. But when you talk about like civilizations and who we should let into our civilization and and the incompatibility of these ideas it's incredibly important to understand that yes in some trivial way yes that's true right that that um, Hamas has not held elections since they won by elections supported uh by democratic elections supported by both Israel and the Bush administration at the time right holding those elections um uh it's i think it's it's just critical to understand that yes this does actually represent the sentiments of not everyone, but certainly by no means like a, a tiny minority of of Palestinians in Gaza. This is not some like fringe, unrelated sentiment. The fact that the Hamas charter, you know, uh, explicitly calls for a genocide against Jews, this is not a, a fringe belief in Gaza. It's not like a tiny percentage, a tiny minority who has its boot on the neck of the rest of, of Gaza. That is not an accurate description and it was it was very frustrating to me actually to hear i don't know if you heard that clip of george w bush um no. it was circulating making the rounds so there was an interview uh with him about this conflict and that's like the first thing out of his mouth even though you know he's was very firmly on the side of israel said a lot of you know things that are i agree with and that are true it showed me like the the power of this kind of delusional thinking that i i would have thought the last 20 years would have disabused americans of right the, the, and it, it reminded me very much of how you know he refused to tie Islam to the attacks on 9/11 and said instead we're going to launch a global war on terror the tactic right um, and that again of course one must recognize individuality and nuance in this of course it's right that the American president would say you know the, the people who did this are not your your Muslim neighbors right um, of course you want to distinguish the innocent from the guilty always but but to to pretend that this has nothing to do with the underlying ideology right that the, the reason that those men flew planes into you know civilian targets and killed thousands of americans has nothing to do with islam or how they see the world is is a, a, like completely naive folly that i can't believe that after the last 20 years and the failed you know nation building and all of the rest of it um that that still, you know, somebody who was once president of the United States and is still like a very powerful man uh, in terms of, of of how these conflicts go cannot recognize something so obviously true and simple as no, like actually Hamas does represent to a certain extent does represent the ambitions of Palestinian society, right? Not every Palestinian, and there are plenty of people. And by the way, there are plenty of of ethnic Palestinians and other kinds of Arabs in. Israel and many of them are are now mustering to war against this, right? So it's not to deny the individual capacity to transcend these things, as you say, um, but but to not recognize that there's any tie there between the beliefs of a civilization and the output is hopelessly naive. And I can't understand how, after the last twenty years, anyone can cling to this idea. I think also just understanding the religious element of this. I mean, I saw footage of um, Gazans who were who were sort of protesting, basically, that the IDF had told them, like, you need to move, you need to go south because you're in danger where you are. Like, here's the places you can go um, where you will be safe. By the way, more than we we ever did more than the, the us has done in its various conflicts more than it was done in sec in the second world war um the british weren't you know giving a heads up to dresden before they firebombed them which you know is obviously more morally controversial but point is you know we're, they've told civilians like get out of the way and you have this protest and i was you know 
again, have to ch check my own Western liberal biases here, but I was shocked because here, here were uh, parents with ch children, small children, shouting about how they weren't going to go anywhere. They're going to stay exactly where they are. And I had to, you know, really think about the fact that if you believe that there is glory waiting you after after death, if you if you're killed by the enemy and Allah will provide for you and your children, and you sincerely, sincerely believe that, then maybe that's not such an unpeeling option versus getting your belongings in a suitcase and traipsing for miles and you know having to leave your home and leave your community. I mean, maybe, maybe that maybe that does make sense you know when you when you detach it from your from your western logic and especially it makes sense when they're being told by Hamas stay where you are or in some cases make a human shield you know ac across the across the border so that the IDF are, are going to be blocked by civilians um which they've done before of course this is these are out of the Hamas playbook at this point um and and you know it, it's it's hard it's hard to relate because you think you know if you or I were were somewhere and we had small children and we were we were told it was about to be bombed or you know we were going to come into contact with um, with soldiers we we would get over ourselves basically we'd put aside our um, our pride and we would take our children to somewhere safe but that's because we have a completely different framework. And belief system, which is just so different, um, and there is just this—you're right. There's just this this pervasive naivety in what exactly we're dealing with here. Yeah, um, my my uh, co-host on a different podcast, uh, Richard Hanania, um, I thought wrote a a really challenging article uh, about this on his Substack, um, essentially questioning. So first of all, with, with some data showing that um, powerful countries are increasingly, and powerful countries is a proxy for Western countries, even though there are a couple of countries outside of that framework, right? Um, but increasingly showing that powerful countries are losing wars to much less powerful countries in the last 50 or 60 years, uh, comparatively throughout history. And he has a nice little graph showing, you know, typical Hanania behavior. He has a nice, like, graph showing... Uh, showing this over time, but something that if, if we just think about the, the wars and kind of count backwards through wars um, the West has been involved in, uh, you can see that, that in fact, uh, World War II was really the last kind of clear, uh, massive victory, and that was between equally powerful countries. And then when you, when you count onwards, um, you start to see like, okay, you have um, Korea, which we initially were winning, but then we took a settlement that was 50-50, right? Um, it's a much smaller country, Vietnam, much smaller country than the United States, uh, much less um, equipped, even though still a major war. And then, of course, we end up with Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, actually, maybe the first Gulf War is the first decisive victory in a long time over a smaller and weaker country. But then it's followed by the second Gulf War and by Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, and the uncomfortable implication that he makes, um, and here I'm talking about Richard, is you know, maybe exactly our, our sort of civilizing tendencies in the West make it impossible for us to continue to win wars. Um, that, in fact, what is necessary to decisively win a war is a, a type of brutality that the West simply cannot abide anymore. Um, and this, this makes us essentially will we'll always be unable to, to complete and win these wars abroad. Um, I guess, unless we have a similarly powerful foe, I'm not wholly convinced by it because I think there's also this voluntary piece of it, right? Which is the lack, the, the lack of moral clarity is, is a choice. Um, it's an ideological choice that we've made. It's not, I don't think as he tries to present it sort of the larger evolution of, of, um, you know, the enlightenment or Western civilization, this specific inability, I think, is a choice. And I'm glad you brought up Dresden because it seems to me that there is a clear link between, and this maybe circles back to how we started this conversation, there's a clear link between people who are unable to see 
that Hamas actually has a base of support uh, in, in Palestine or in the Palestinian territories, whatever you want to call that, Gaza and the West Bank. Um, like, there's a, there's a connection there between the same people who uh, have no ability to separate Dresden and dropping the atomic bomb, America dropping the atomic bomb on Japan. Um, and they see these as great moral failings of the West. And um, actually, I think this came came to, to the fore in a very frustrating way to me uh, when the Canadian Parliament recognized the, the Waffen-SS officer because he had been a Ukrainian partisan during the war, which, you know, there's sort of a series of mistakes there. If you know anything about the region, first of all, uh, if you're honoring Ukrainian partisans in 1944, you better check uh, what they were up to. Uh, and, and But then the second layer of like, oh, it's incomprehensible that they would join with the Nazis. Well, they were, that's immediately after the Holodomor and, uh, you know, immediately after Bolshevik brutality in Ukraine. Um, and the idea that there was only one monster on the European continent at that time is just historically illiterate, right? Um, anyway, so like there was these layers of mistakes, but finally when the left had acknowledged that, oh, maybe we shouldn't have applauded for this, this SS officer, right? The, the way it was defended, and I saw a bunch of like Canadian uh, journalists and commentators saying this basically, well, yes, but really aren't we all at least as bad because, you know, we firebombed Dresden and dropped the, the atomic bomb, right? And, and the, the ultimate answer to that and their ultimate defense was actually there, there was no difference between the good guys and the bad guys. There was no difference between um, the Allies and the Axis in World War II, uh, which is funny for people who see Nazis in the woodwork everywhere um, as the ultimate evil. But uh, it, it seems to me like very uh, intellectually connected, these two, the inability to, to see why there's a moral clarity in this Israeli-Palestinian conflict, whatever one then does with that, like whether what's the role of America, what's the role of the UK, like these are realpolitik questions to some extent, right? Um, but, uh, you know, to not be able to see with moral clarity the sides in this conflict seems to me to be connected to this inability to recognize that, yeah, like war requires from us, even the good guys, war requires a, a level of brutality that we need to be able to commit in full knowledge that we are still the morally superior party. And even that, I feel like we are quote unquote too sophisticated to, to not argue with what I just said, even though I think it's very obvious. Yeah. This has been illustrated by the, the popular misunderstanding of proportionality. So proportionality is obviously a, a, a principle in, in just war theory, and it it doesn't mean what it's commonly misunderstood to mean. It doesn't mean that, okay, we killed this many people, or Hamas killed this many people, so we get to kill exactly the same number of people. I mean, setting aside the fact that Hamas killed them in completely brutal ways, setting aside the fact that some of them were were tortured, raped, um, setting aside the fact that they were they were civilian targets. Okay, they weren't collateral damage. That was the intention. The intention was to go in and kill civilians, which which isn't justified. You can you can you can justify um, it as collateral when your intention is to weaken your enemy. You can you can justify um, you, you can justify it as part of a larger war aim, basically. But this this wasn't this was the, the whole point of it was terror. And to suggest that that is the same that that in order for Israel to react, they they would have to do something proportionate. And to suggest that once they get over the the, the threshold of whatever thirteen hundred or, or three thousand, if you want to include wounded, that they have to stop, it's just complete misunderstanding of of the principle. Um, the the principle is whether you whether your intentions um, and and your objective and and the likelihood of of its success and effectiveness, whether that justifies the collateral damage. And there will always be collateral damage in war and intentionality does matter and who started it does matter and why they started it does matter these are these are all the conversations that just get completely lost it was amazing to watch there's a, a palestinian journalist in gaza just now and she was on a british um talk show and uh the the, the interviewer asked her fairly in my view 
okay, you, you keep saying the response by Israel has been disproportionate. What would you have them do? What, what in your mind, would be uh, an appropriate response? And she refused, she just refused to answer the question. She was asked about five or six times. She just refused to answer the question. And the, the answer is nothing. Do nothing. That, or, or actually probably more than that, probably cease to exist, <laughs> go somewhere else. Um, so you're right, there, there's a lack of moral clarity. I mean, I think, I think there, there are genuine good faith discussions that can be had about the morality of, of, of some things that, that happen in war and, and whether they did actually meet that threshold, whether, whether the, the intention was correct, whether the objective was actually necessary. I mean, I know there's, there's a debate, I think a, a good faith debate about Hiroshima, whether the war could be won in, in another way. And, and, you know, there's, there's a strong argument that maybe it couldn't have because, because of the nature of, of Japanese morale and, 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 and various things. But, there, but that's, that's different from saying we're the same as this murderous Nazi regime. We're the, we're the same as, as those who want world domination by um, completely obliterating the Jewish people and instating this fascist ideology. I mean, I think, I think when, you, when you cease to see the difference between Churchill and, and Hitler, which some people clearly, clearly do, then you've, you've really just lost any credibility. Well, that's the last bit's the problem, right, is they haven't lost credibility. People who can't see the difference between Churchill and Hitler are running most U.S. institutions and many of institutions in Western Europe, right? Um, people who very intentionally have, you know, what is this phrase? That there are some things only an intellectual could believe, right? Um, yeah. People who don't see that difference, um, you know, and, and I, I like to put like a sharper point on it with a, a slightly different example. Um, there are many people in the United States who do not see the difference between the boys who landed on Omaha Beach and Hitler, right? Um, because they have such a, a narcissistic conception of uh, the racial utopia that is supposed to result, uh, or, or that that the U.S. owes um, its its minority populations. For example, um, you know, most of most of the the boys that fought that war probably held what today we would call you know, racist views um, and the inability to see the difference between a, a kind of simple prejudice, which, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm not saying it's a good thing by any means, but has been with us forever and will be with us forever. This kind of like preference for one's own cultural similarities, right? Um, these, these things are, are some level of tribalism isn't, is, the state of, of man, the inability to see the difference between that and these like scientific genocidal impulses or the, the impulse uh, of, of um, Hamas supporting, you know, Palestinians to completely wipe out Jews. Um, frankly, I'm not even sure leaving would do it, right? First of all, as, as the piece you sent me uh, asked this question, um, in the Times of London, uh, an op-ed saying, well, where where would the Jews go? Right? It's the same question in 1945. Where where would they go where uh, they, they could be safe? Where would those those Israelis go um, if the state of Israel ceased to exist? Uh, which, if, if, you know, if, if uh, the, the forces aligned against them now were to succeed in their aim at demolishing the Israeli state, uh, make no mistake, there would be a genocide there. Um, so I'm getting a little far afield here, but um, I, I do think we have this, this like, and it comes right down back to the individual too, this mentality, as, as you said, it doesn't matter who started it, different levels of, of like moral imperfection are irrelevant. Like the fact that the United States or, or um, you know, even in the 1940s was not a, not a perfect country that we had, in, at that time, still like legal segregation in some parts of, of, of the country, the idea that that's morally equivalent to systematic and scientific genocide is itself of like moral idiocy, um, which doesn't doesn't downplay the fact that you know segregation was bad. I know that's a really controversial opinion to state, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
um, the, the inability to see these like different levels of imperfection of different societies as, as uh, like in any way distinguishable. And then even on the individual level, like what do we do on the schoolyard now? If two boys get into a fight, it doesn't matter who started it. It doesn't matter if one kid goes up to the other kid and punches him in the face and steals his lunch money and the other kid defends himself. It doesn't matter. It's both. It doesn't matter who started it. You're both suspended. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a suicidal impulse on on the national level and and probably on the individual level as well. Yeah, and the there's an irony to it as well, of course, because for for years the the secular stand-in for Satan has been Hitler, and so many comparisons have been made to the Nazis, um, drawn comparisons between sometimes fairly moderate conservatives um or 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 trumpy republicans or trump himself and and saying that they are they are nazis and now we, now we realize that this term nazi is completely hollowed out it's now got nothing to do with the jews it's simply someone i don't like someone who's 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 morally repugnant and i don't like that's what this term now means because it's been astonishingly absent um, the comparison that is, that is normally the recourse of of elements of the left has been astonishingly absent in this um, in this event with with Hamas, where it's actually a fitting comparison because it's the slaughter of Jews because they are Jews. That's maybe a time you could start calling people Nazis, but no, it, because as you say, there's an inability to actually understand what any of these previous conflicts were about. There's also an inability to understand how real change happens now you mentioned segregation of, of course like that was terrible was it an improvement to what came before the, the american civil war the passing of the 14th amendment did, did anyone really expect given what we know about human nature given what we know about the the effort that it takes to to change people's minds to change social norms did anyone really expect that we were just going to go from um, the American Civil War straight to full uh, racial equality and integration. Like maybe some people did, and and listen, maybe maybe it's a good thing to be an idealist because it gives you motivation and it makes you fight and it makes you effective because you you can see this as potentially happening in your own lifetime and you're willing to to give everything you have to to make sure that it does happen in your own lifetime. But with with historical perspective, with what we know about human nature, what we know about our, all of us, all of us have these moral imperfections. And as you say, kind of simple prejudices, preference for the group, preference for the familiar over the unfamiliar. This was, this was obviously going to take time to, to reform. And this is again, something that I think you see in the contrast between, you know, what, what we expect uh, Israel to, to do and how we expect Israel to respond versus these you know insurgent groups these terrorist groups um on its borders it's, it's not it's not something we expect of any other western democracy we don't expect you to live with your neighbor um firing rockets into your backyard you know on a on a yearly monthly basis and just for you just to do nothing until it gets so bad that they literally slaughter uh, they literally break into your country and, and slaughter your own people. And even then we expect you to kind of live with it because, because what? Because they have a point, because the terrorists have a point. I mean, it's just, this, there's just so many double standards. And I think that's really why um, it's difficult not to see, I mean, I know it's not the only factor here, but it's difficult not to see a large motivation of this, and I'm, obviously the motivation for Hamas is, is anti-Semitism, but a large motivation on those making moral equivalences also being anti-Semitism. If we are if we are to take our definition from Rabbi Sachs, who, who said, you know, anti-Semitism is denying the right of Jews to live collectively as Jews with the same rights as everybody else, people who are making demands on Israel to put up with things that we don't expect anybody else to put up with why why the different treatment yeah i mean this is this has always been the the lie about the anti this is sharp separation between anti-zionism and anti-semitism um not because it's impossible to to 
critique sharply the behavior of this, the state of Israel. You know, nobody critiques the state of Israel more than Israelis um, who are just engaged in a, a bitter divide, political domestic divides over just about everything right before this happened. Right. So, um, you know, it's it's not that, and then that's that's kind of the the Mott and Bailey structure of these arguments. Often is, you know, what you don't think that we should be able to criticize Israel. We, there's, of course, I'm not an anti-Semite. I just want to criticize Israel, and of course, but if you single out this one country among all of the countries in the world and apply to it radically different standards than you apply to everyone else then yes, like my presumption is the reason you're doing that is because you don't like the fact that it's a Jewish state as opposed to any other state in the world. Um, if you are sort of a, a blanket pacifist and you apply all those standards, I mean, I think that's stupid for a variety of reasons. Um, but but that's, that's you know, that doesn't have to be anti-Semitic for sure, right? And, and there is this sort of theoretical ability to separate these two things. But in practice, if you're applying a standard to the Israeli state that you don't apply to anyone else. And that standard is basically you have to participate in your own demise. Um, it's hard for me to see it as anything other than, than anti-Semitic motivation. Um, there, there's also the, the element here where I think Ayan Hirsi Ali had a, a good piece at unheard about this. Um, there, there's an existential threat in Israel that prevents them from falling too far down into this, this sort of, suicidal mentality of the West uh, that we've been talking about, right? Um, because every time they do, and, and the recent political divisions are a good example of that, every time that they do, you know, they are existentially vulnerable in a way. You know, it's easy to forget how small this country is, right? It's it's nine and a half million people. It's it's basically this, the population of New York. It's basically the size of New Jersey, right? New York City population, New Jersey is about as big as the territorial claim that Israel has, right? The borders. Um, you can easily, like, this is this is just, uh, so think about the, for example, the 1,300 killed uh, and, and many more wounded. Now, I think in, a, in the U.S., this would be equivalent to something like 30 or 35,000 deaths uh, population-wise. So, um, you know, this is a very, very small country. Oh, and by the way, a country where the front is only a couple hours' drive from the major cities from Jerusalem, from Tel Aviv, right? Um, you can drive across Israel length, sort of uh, la laterally in, in a few hours. Um, so it's important to keep that, I think just the physical in mind, but um, the the interview that you were bringing up uh, on, on TV with the woman who was asked repeatedly, well, what should Israel do to respond to this? You know... <sighs> On the, on the superficial, or sort of not superficial, but the like the first level, that I think what they're hoping to do is to completely destroy uh, the leadership and rank and file of Hamas, their ability to carry out this kind of attack, which is, as you say, a completely legitimate uh, military target. Um, Hamas's operational headquarters is beneath a hospital. Um, this is a, a fact that has been widely reported by every Western media source available. So it, if, if one denies this, they are simply... Uh, simply engaging in, in the hear no evil, see no evil sort of analysis. Um, so that that is just a small indication of how Hamas does set up its its military targets in civilian areas and then intentionally tries to retain those civilians as a human shield. Um, but and, and the, the deeper question of how to resolve this conflict, right? Because immediately there has to be the question, what happens to Gaza after Israel has destroyed Hamas? And there is no easy answer to this question. Nobody wants Gaza. The idea that Israel wants to reoccupy Gaza is crazy. Israel doesn't want Gaza to reoccupy Gaza. Nobody wants Gaza. They offered the keys to Gaza to Egypt. I think at one point they offered it to Jordan. Nobody wants this. Egypt hasn't opened their border to the refugees. Um, and and so th the question is, you know, how do you exist as a small and existentially threatened state alongside um, millions of people who a large percentage of which, which are willing to die to kill your children. I think that's like, that, that is a question that Western civilization, even aside from all the moral equivalencies and the, the sort of leftism 
that has infected us, even if we leave that aside and pretend those people didn't exist or they, they held, you know, views closer to our own. I actually don't know the answer to that question because all the answers seem too brutal to contemplate. And that's exactly this, this level of, of separation between different stages of human civilization. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know what the answer to that question is. Um, I don't know if, if you do, but it just seems to me that like, what you, what do you do? You just continue to take these kinds of hits continually until the Palestinians evolve to a different level of, of civilization where maybe they actually want to build an electric grid instead of killing Jews. I mean, you, you can't yeah. ask somebody to do that, to like continually to watch the, the brutal murder of their, their civilians. You can't ask a modern state to do that. I'm thinking of the analogy um, the historian, the Israeli historian Benny Morris has made where he he's in, in reference to um, a similar situation Israel has been in before um, where he says, you know, it's kind of like if you're in your house and your neighbor um, attacks you, he sends rockets from, from, from his house. And in an act of self-defense, you go into your neighbor's house and you throw him out of his house. And later he says, can I come back? And you say, no. <laughs> No, you can't come back. So do you have the authority to, to throw somebody out of their house? Well, no, but under the circumstances, thinking about your own safety, what, what is your alternative? Your alternative is to, you can move or, or what? As you say, you can learn to live with your murderous neighbor. Um, now, obviously, th this, this analogy becomes complicated because it's, it's more like living in that house are some of the people who are firing rockets and some of the people who aren't. And you have no way of telling which is which. Um, pretty sure they all hate you. But, you know, I mean, what 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 do you do? I mean, I don't I don't have a I don't have a, a an answer, but I I think this is where I would I'd probably have some humility and say, well, that's Israel's decision. And other countries and, and commentators should should respect that and say, we're not the ones living in that situation and so they have a right to defend themselves as they see fit within the normal you know rules of war and, and so on um so we'll see but it, it does it does seem like they've tried everything else you know they've they've tried to make concessions they've made concession after concession they've tried to live with with the rockets the occasional rockets but this is something that they they can't live with so where where do they go from here? I I, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's definitely some pragmatic questions about this is a massive security failure and uh, the limits of relying on technology and over reliance of technology, Iron Dome, the kind of surveillance that was possible in on the Gaza border, you know, all of that failed. I mean, speaking of of civilizational transitions or, or traditions, rather, uh, you know, Netanyahu should be quite happy there's no Israeli tradition of seppuku um, because th this level of failure, I mean, this is probably the biggest state failure since the founding of Israel, um, which is not to say he should immediately resign because that would just cause more more chaos. But I mean, I, I think he's fun functionally done over there, um, this this level of security failure. And that, that's that's also a question for, for us, right? It's a security failure on our part as well, but of the operation of this level and, and the Western intelligence didn't pick it up. Um, and so there's all kinds of pragmatic questions, but as you say, I, I really don't know the answer to the, the sort of larger question outside of the immediate. Um, the immediate answers seem quite clear, but the, uh, the medium and long-term answers, uh, I, I think, as you say, uh, we have to have a, a certain amount of hum humility about it, but I, I'm, I'm very glad that uh, I'm not the one facing uh, these these long term decisions because it seems to me that all the options are bad. But um, Maddie Kearns from from National Review, thank you uh, for for co hosting. You'll, Maddie will be back uh, co hosting every so often. So this is going to be the new model of this show. Um, hopefully you guys like it. Um, please send comments and questions if you don't. Uh, but but it's also if you do, those are always nice emails to get. Um, but thank you, thank you for listening. Thanks for for sticking with us through this this reboot. Um, and High Noon is Inez Stepman, is a production of the Independent Women. As always, uh, you can send comments and questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org. 
please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.